Should there be prayer in American public schools? Today's guest, Professor Alan Dershowitz, does not think so. But I do, so we argued about that for about 35 minutes. I have a great joke for you. Welcome to episode 78 of the Weekly Squeeze podcast. I'm your very humble and very, very talented podcast host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. In the state of Israel, which, by the way, has the highest number of altruistic kidney donors per capita in the world. That's crazy. Not surprising, however being that Israelis are so compassionate, loving, and generous, and that Jews are b'nai rachamim, the children of merciful ones. And so it's no surprise to me that in the uh, last 11 years, 1,005 people gave up kidneys, voluntarily volunteered a kidney. That is no small feat, no small deal, no small mitzvah. And every year there are dozens and dozens of kidney contributions to people who need them. So that's a beautiful thing um, because Israel is a beautiful place and the Jews are wonderful people. And yeah, I am clearly a fan. Welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. This is episode, what, 78? Amazing. Sometimes I think, you know what we need? Three episodes of the Weekly Squeeze a week. And then I say, come on, Hanala, don't get carried away. There are not enough people out there who want to hear you speaking that much. Or are there? I guess we'll see how fast this podcast grows. So far, so good. Thank you so much for sharing it with your friends, talking about it, just, you know, mentioning it at a Shabbos meal where there are like 50 people. That would be great. I appreciate your support, your feedback, and the very exciting chats that are taking place in my WhatsApp inbox. I hate WhatsApp. It's like, I don't want to see anything extra from the universe pop up on my phone because I'm part of a WhatsApp group. And that just happens all day long. All day long, things are popping up. And I'm like, I need to know that. I need to know that. I probably needed to know that. But yeah, it's a lot. What's amazing to me is that my mother did not have WhatsApp groups. And maybe that's why she never knew what was flying. But you know what? We didn't know what was flying either. Today, my kids are like, hello, didn't you see on the WhatsApp group that you have PTA tonight? Didn't you see you were supposed to click on that form and in Hebrew, fill out a Word document, figuring out what 1755 means and what time that is in American time so that you can go to a PTA and speak to a teacher and smile knowing that you don't understand half the things she's saying. And my Hebrew is really good, except the teachers just, I don't know, they talk with fancy words because they're teachers. Anyway, the point is that you can't miss a thing now because everything is on your WhatsApp. And then how does it work with your parents on WhatsApp? Because I always feel... Like, I don't understand the hilchos kibbut of aim, the laws of respecting your mother and father as applied to texting and WhatsApping. Like, let's say you have a parent who loves to send you memes. Is it chutzpah not to reply with uh, an emoji, even if you think the meme is stupid? What if you have your blue checks off and your parents are going to be anxious until they know that you saw that meme? Should you call them? Is it disrespectful if you don't call them? What if your mother sends you a link to a podcast? And this happens to me all the time. She'll be like, listen to this. And I'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll get to it. And then the next day she'll be like, you didn't listen to it? And then I wonder, like, should I have stopped what I was doing? I mean, is there some serious questionable behavior here? Maybe I should ask a rub. Like if my mother says to listen to a podcast, do I have, do I have 72 minutes to start it? Like what, what is the, what, what, what's required of me? There's just so much pressure. There's so much pressure with every WhatsApp notification. It's like every time my phone buzzes, I have to reply and do something for that person because they demanded it. And if I don't do it, and if my blue checks are on, 
Oh my Lord, she didn't answer me within three seconds. And what kind of person does that? So there's just a lot of pressure on the WhatsApp groups. And also there's really no excuse for missing anything anymore because everyone lets you know what's happening, when it's happening, when it's starting, when it's in the middle of, when it's over, and it's all happening live on your WhatsApp groups. Even when you send your kids to a party, immediately you're put into a party planning WhatsApp group that all the mothers are in talking about carpool for four days. And then finally your kid goes to the party and then the WhatsApp chat is nonstop. It's like pictures and discussions and conversations. You're like, should I be involved in this conversation about a bat mitzvah party that's taking place on the other side of town? Because if not, maybe I'm like a bad mother. Like I don't care enough. So this also just adds to the guilt. I mean, I'm looking at my phone now, okay? So the first group I have is Ramat Shilo Gals. That's my neighborhood chat. And let's see what's going on here. You know, people want to know about doctor's appointments, um, you know, where they can get certain items of clothing, some shearum that are going on. Somebody wants to give away some Raymond soup and a baby bottle. Okay, fine. Then you have the Ramachilo Chesed group. So this is a group for those who are extra mitzvah oriented. And this is all the things that you do that fall under the, that you could do for the community that falls under the category of Chesed. So that's just what, you know, a guilt trip group that I'm part of and can't leave. Then obviously my downstairs neighbor who messages me all day. Um, my mother who sent me a YouTube video she wants me to watch. My kids who just messaged me, whatever. This is what my oldest messaged me. Please answer the phone, E-E-E-E-E with 50 E's, B-D-D-F-G-E-F-D, please never mind. <laughs> I swear. I mean, I promise I don't swear. We don't swear. Okay, then I'm part of, obviously, fourth grade class. That's all in Hebrew, so that's just a bust. Then I'm part of this daily pitachan group where people just share inspiring things that I have no time to read. And then there's the family chats. I mean, the family chats. There's the family chat, and then there's the inner family chat, and then there's the innermost family chat. So I am part of the most external one, exterior one, like the great-grandchildren family chat. And then, you know, I, I try to keep out of, like, the Bukharian family on my mother's side chat. Like, I'm not part of that chat. Anyways, I feel like I went off on a tangent about WhatsApp groups for the last five minutes even though I'm supposed to be recording a professional grown-up show here. But, you know, sometimes you just got to get off what's on your chest. Fresh clashes between Haredi protesters and police outside of Jerusalem cell phone shop. This is not a headline I like to see, and these are not pictures I like to see, because what I see are Israeli soldiers and Israeli police uh, in hands-on combat with Haredim. So that's not a good thing. And I have to ask myself, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where Hasidic men feel it is okay to riot in the name of God? I don't like riots, period. I don't care who's riot. The word riot is already problematic, okay? So if people are rioting, it really makes no difference to me why they're rioting and what their cause is all about. Because once you start behaving in that way, Nothing you, you say is valid. Your argument becomes moot. Now, obviously, there are levels of riots. I'm not saying that what we saw in Israel this week from the Haredim is what takes place in, say, Manhattan when people are throwing bricks into Bloomingdale's. But in general, a riot is a form of civil disorder. It's just a massive public temper tantrum. And you can do whatever you want because you are under the perception that there is an injustice being 
enacted upon you and you are going to air your grievances and nothing is going to stop you from making your point. And that is not okay. So what happened is that in Pneibrak, a cell phone store was selling cell phones. And those cell phones clearly either had internet uh, capabilities, um, something that didn't please the people living in Pneibrak. So they decided they're going to riot. And they blocked the streets and they threw something at a bus and immediately things became um, rowdy and, and out of control. And in general, whenever there are protests and the police show up, things just immediately escalate because there is an unspoken war between the police in this country and the Haredim. Um, the Haredim accuse the police of being or manhandling them and, and being more aggressive with them than they are with terrorists. And the police argue that the Haredim always become violent. And, you know, this week there was there were 80,000 people uh, 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 demonstrating against the government of Israel and there was no violence. There really wasn't. It, it was pretty calm, you know, and, and there were no incidents. But somehow whenever there's a group of Hasidim protesting something, garbage cans are on fire, bricks are being thrown, graffiti is being uh, sprayed, and, and, and there's complete chaos. But let's talk about the actual cause, okay? So they're demonstrating because there's a store in their religious neighborhood that sells something that they deem inappropriate for the community. I mean, is, is it acceptable for a community to protest if there is a store in their neighborhood that sells something that's absolutely an affront to their religion? So you have, to, you have to understand it from the perspective of the Haredim. They feel like internet is an affront to their religion. The problem is the way they're approaching it. They live in the state of Israel. And in the state of Israel, we have law and order. And when there's law and order, we don't do things that are violent to make our point. We go to the court of law. And if the Hasidim don't want to go to the court of law because it's easier to just do violence and make a point and scare the, the store owner out of business, then, you know, we're going to go, we're going to, this is never going to end. So I am not a fan of this kind of behavior at all. Doesn't mean I don't understand the concern of the community. That's a whole other conversation. But I'm saying as far as demonstrating with violence, that is not going to work. You do live here in the state of Israel. There are other people. And if Arabs would do this and they would demonstrate in front of a store, a Jewish store that they didn't like in their neighborhood. I mean, could you imagine this, the, the scenario if that, if that led to violence? That would be shocking. You don't get a free pass because you're from. It's not okay. And it shouldn't happen. And it's extreme extreme and i don't like extreme i say it all the time that's right all right let's move on this week's episode of the weekly squeeze has been brought to you by israel 365 israel 365 is on a mission to reforest the hills of jerusalem specifically the mountainside of shorish a beautiful neighborhood all but 20 minutes from my house between Beit Shemesh and Jerusalem, where a forest fire destroyed thousands and thousands of beautiful Israeli trees. And now Shoresh is on a mission to replant those trees with the help of our brothers and sisters in America. So what do you do? How do you do this? Well, you go over to my show notes, you click on the link that says buy a tree in Israel, and right at your fingertips is the opportunity to own a tree that will be planted with your name on your behalf in the soil where its roots will grow and flourish, where the tree will thrive and bloom 
a tree with your name on it because you listened to Hanala and you decided to go out on a limb, <laughs> pardon my pun, and buy a tree in the land of Israel. So what are you waiting for? $25 and I myself will plant your tree. Well, not exactly. I did plant my own tree and that was a very meaningful experience. And I did it so I could tell you how special it feels to know that a tree is growing in my name here in the land of Israel. So if you are feeling nostalgic or you just want to give a gift with meaning, head over to my show notes, click on the link, Israel365, so they know I sent you. So many amazing writers on the internet. You know that blogs still exist? There are still people who take the time to write paragraphs that turn into essays that sometimes even turn into books. So I read something this week on the internet that I thought was wonderful, and now you are going to have to hear it too. So this is from Paula. She's an Israeli. She made Aliyah, and this is a beautiful little essay that she wrote about her love for the land of Israel. And I can relate to every single word because I love Israel. And I know that so many of you wish you lived here and you're thinking like, when is it going to be my turn to make Aliyah and go to Israel and get to be able to stay? Well, I'm going to make you want it a little more. Well, actually, Paula is. I'm just going to read this to you. I'm just zooming in. (laughs) I'm buying time here with all these words. Okay, here we go. Uh, I had a dream last night. I had a dream last night that woke me from my sleep. Much of it makes no sense, and yet the longing in the dream remained with me as I opened my eyes and reminded myself that the dream had come true long ago. In the dream, we were a young couple. Now we are not. In the dream, I called my husband from work and told him I just needed to go to Israel. That moment, right there. He asked me how it was possible, and I told him there was a flight in a few hours, and I would take our youngest son, his car seat, and carriage on the plane. What luggage I ain't have, I would buy. What I needed, I would manage. Irrational in the world of awake made perfect sense in the world of sleep. It was a sense of desperation, a longing to the depths of my soul. My manager at work would understand and let me work remotely. How long I would be gone, it was not even discussed. In the dream, I got to the point of waiting in line to board the plane before I forced myself to wake up. And as I do every day, thank God, I woke up in my home on the edge of the Judean desert just to the east of Jerusalem. The little boy finished the army a few years ago and is in university. The carriage and car seat, new ones anyway, are used for my grandchildren, all born here. Nothing of the dream made sense. I am blessed with other children, not just one. They all live here in the same city where I live. Three served in combat, two served in national service. My manager is indeed a very understanding man and lets me work remotely most of the time. Nothing made sense. As I lie in bed coming out of the dream that came true long ago, what was left to me was the longing, the depth, the desperation, the need to drop everything and come home, be here. In real life, our aliyah took several months and included much more than my son's carriage and car seat. In fact, the son in our dream was born in Israel. These things belong to my middle son, who is now married and a father. Many Israelis hear the news and come to the conclusion that now is the time for Jews all over the world to return to Israel. Yes, return, come home. Those are the words we Israelis use because they reflect our beliefs, our thoughts. This is our home, the home of the Jewish people. Non-Israelis agree. This is the home of the Jewish people, where we came from, where we have lived uninterrupted, but for a bit over 400 years, a bit over 3,000 years ago. Over 7 million Jews live in the land of Israel, more than in any country, almost more than in all the other countries combined. When I moved here almost 30 years ago, Aliyah was not generally accepted and certainly not commonly done. Well, that has changed. 
What is missing is what I woke up with this morning here in Israel, the longing. Israelis are mistaken when they relentlessly call on Jews in other countries to come home, but they won't until the longing reaches deep into the depth of their souls, until they are so desperate to leave, they literally are ready to go to the airport and catch a plane. I had a dream last night. I woke up to the fulfillment of that dream in the morning. I'm still shaken by that agonizing longing, and I am working to calm my soul. We are home. It's okay. You did it. You got us here. It's okay. Look out at the desert. Feel the warmth of the Israeli sun. I am home. When the longing grows inside of you, dear brothers and sisters, I will welcome you home too. Wow. I felt every single word of that. All right. My next uh, story is, I was debating, should we talk about it? Should we not talk about it? But we have to talk about it. We do have to talk about it because this is a failure I'll give you the information. You could determine who failed, but I think it's fairly clear. Okay, so let me tell you about a woman named Leah. Leah was born into a Hasidic family in Stamford Hill, London. Um, She said that when she was little, the only thing that was ever ingrained in her was that her goal in life was to get married and have kids. So much so, she writes, that when I went to study for an exam or do something that wasn't compulsory, I was told, don't do that. You don't need that. Go, Go check on the diapers. So Leah got married, she had six kids, and she lived for years with what she described as emotional manipulation and psychological abuse. I don't want to get into all the details, but just really sad stuff. And she reached out for help, and her Rebbe told her to give it another try. And the Rebbetzin she asked for help actually told her, well, Baruch Hashem, at least he doesn't, he doesn't hit you. Um, she asked the based in to get involved, and they sent her to get a psychiatric evaluation. Again, I'm going to skip all these details, but it's it was a nightmare. And she spoke often about um, how difficult the experience was for her, how she felt that Diana were not hearing her, and that things were not getting better. She said she felt unsupported by her community. And things went from bad to worse. And eventually she left. She took her two kids with her, and she filed for divorce. And... It, you know, that's a process. And she, in the meantime, unfortunately, um, got sick. And her health deteriorated. And her husband, meanwhile, never showed up to the basin, um, continued to create a lot of unpleasant experiences for her. And she got sicker and sicker. And on top of it, she's in her 40s, and people are like, why do you need to get a get? Like, why do you need to even, you're in your 40s, just like stay where you are. Now, I don't know all the details, I'll be perfectly honest, but from what I do understand, the information available from a trusted source, that the Basin could have done things differently to help her, and they didn't. And it got to a point where people in her neighborhood actually protested. There's an organization called Get Out UK, which supports um, Agunos, and they came out with Yiddish signs and English signs. 2,920 days are too many, shame on you. Leah deserves a get. But unfortunately, not only did she get a get, but she died, chained to a marriage she didn't want to be in. So what do we do? What can we do? Well, we can't get involved in every single scenario, but there are things we can do as a community. First of all, we could um, rate our local Bastins. And I'm going to put a link in my show notes to the website where you can rate your local Bastin so that there is some accountability. And that's extremely important. There has to be transparency. Um, transparency, respect, and justice. 
And all those things are intertwined. So rate your base in. I'm putting a link in my show notes. And yeah, that is how we can begin to end something that doesn't have to be this tragic. Now to the subject, the topic of this podcast, the reason why I reached out to Alan Dershowitz, I have been thinking, what can we do as Americans to improve what's going on in our country? And I say our because I am still an American and I care. I care about America and I care about the future of Americans and my Jewish brothers and sisters who live in America care about America. And we don't just care about the Jews in America. We care about everybody, despite what the anti-Semites might say. So I couldn't help but wonder why we took prayer out of schools. Because when we go back and try to fix something that's broken, we start at the beginning. And the beginning is the beginning of education. So what is missing from our education? Forget about what they're adding to the education. What's missing from the education that perhaps is leading our society astray, our society? And, le and let's look at what's happening. What's happening is that we have this whole gender issue that doesn't go away. I mean, it just doesn't go away. It's ridiculous. It's nonstop. So we have that whole problem, and then there's crime, and then there's drugs. I mean, the situation in America is geferlach. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. It's not the 60s anymore. There are metal detectors in too many schools around the country. So something is broken. Now, the Lubavitch Rebbe wrote uh, and spoke a lot about prayer in public schools and the separation of church and state and how they're not a conflict of interests. So who better to talk to about this than... Professor Alan Dershowitz, who is a very, very famous and brilliant American Jewish lawyer, Jewish American lawyer. And I reached out to him and he showed up and he told me what he thought about what the Rebbe said about prayer in school. So let me ask you, should American public schools have a non-denominational prayer? Uh, the purpose being to promote a moral and just society, starting with our kids. Or does separating church and state in schools have the counterintuitive effect of promoting religious values, as my guest Professor Alan Dershowitz suggests? Does the separation of church and state actually explain why Americans are more religious than Europeans? And most importantly, where did the Lubavitcher Rebbe's views fit in, and would I make a great lawyer in another life? <laughs> Anyways, during my conversation with Professor Dershowitz, a renowned constitutional lawyer, we covered all of this and more. Um, though Professor Dershowitz is brilliant uh, and considered one of the best defense attorneys of his generation, I clearly felt like I was having a spirited conversation with a family member at the Shabbos table. I found the conversation thought-provoking, and I am curious to hear your perspectives as well. Do you believe that prayer in schools will lead to a more moral society, or will it cause too many unintended consequences? Were you swayed by... Professor Dershowitz's arguments, did they change your perspective on the topic? Would you hire me to be your unlicensed lawyer? <laughs> Let me know. Without further ado, Professor Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> Professor Alan Dershowitz, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be squeezed. Thank you. I am not an academic. I cannot debate you. I cannot take you to task on some of your opinions that I might disagree with. But I can present another uh, perspective that perhaps you haven't considered, um, some that are not mine necessarily, maybe the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, if that's okay, Sure. from one Jew to another. Okay, so you said recently on your podcast, um, speaking about education, that nations don't believe, people believe, or don't believe. It's the people's choice. 
Um, I listen to your podcast regularly, but for those who don't, can you summarize your stance on the separation of church and state specifically as it pertains to public schools? Because I have a very strong, different opinion that I would like to present. Let me ask you one question. Do you send your kids to public school? Well, I live in Israel. They are in a public school, a state school, if you were, but we do live in Israel. If you were living in America, would you send them to public school? No. So why do you uh, why are you involved in the decision uh, as to whether or not there should be prayer in the public school? The reason that uh, so many ultra-Orthodox Jews want prayer in the public school is to chase the children out of the public school so they should go to their yeshivas. Um, it's really none of your business whether or not children who are not your children, not related to your children, not part of a community, are exposed to Christian prayer. Because let's be very clear about it. All prayer throughout history of the United States has been Christian prayer. You can try to disguise it. You can try to make it a little bit deist. But in the end, it's Christian prayer. And uh, just imagine uh, a young public school uh, child, six or seven years old, who is brought up either at a Jewish home or a Muslim home, or a home with agnostics and atheists uh, being told by their teacher that they have to pray to a God they don't believe in. Uh, our history has been a history that church and state, when they're not separated, uh, are a disaster. Uh, it was the failure to separate church and state uh, that caused the Inquisition. It was the failure to separate a church from state uh, that caused so many of the pogroms um, in Poland and other places where the Catholic Church was the established church, or in England, where the Anglican Church conducted the Crusades uh, under the name of, uh, of religion. Uh, it's such an important check on both religion and democracy to separate out these two incredible sources of power, combine them together. It has always produced disaster. And the American experiment of separation of church and state uh, has been an extraordinary success. I'll give you another fact. More people attend church in the United States, more percentages, church, synagogue, and mosque than almost anywhere in Europe. Um, and, and that's because we have separation of church and state. Whereas in Europe, if you go to church, you're basically associating yourself uh, with the government, with the state. Um, it's uh, so much better for the church. Remember that the concept of church and state separation was invented, was discovered, was developed by church-going Christians um, who talked about the garden and the wilderness and how important it was to separate the garden from the wilderness, the garden being the church and the wilderness being secular. Uh, separation of church and state has been good for religion. It's been good for democracy. It's not broken. We shouldn't try to fix it. Okay. Well, uh, based on a letter that the Lubavitcher wrote in 1964, okay, I'm going to push back on some of the points that you made because I disagree. I think one of the biggest problems that American Americans are facing is their lack or loss of values. And I think that's the, at the core of it is what they're teaching the children in public school, what they are teaching and what they're not teaching. And you, by the way, insist that there be no fanatical education in public schools, no gender theory, no social justice, equality. I mean, this right. is not about specifically religion. This is about giving children basic education, math, arithmetic, reading and writing. Right. Let's However, let them get their values from home. Yeah. Right. However, the Rebbe very, very clearly felt that it should be not only 
implemented in public schools a non-denominational prayer no that reminds there's no such thing as a non-denominational well the rabbi felt every single child should be taught first as part of their education that there's a creator and master of the if, universe what and if, we are, what if there and, isn't hold on what if there isn't no problem no. a child has their whole life to decide that there isn't so why not but what start, if there is why not start the child by saying there is no such thing as god god is a fake that's what they do in communist china that's what they do in communist russia why err on the side of God and let, let the child develop from there instead of erring on the side? I would be totally against indoctrinating children that there is no God. I think what you tell children is well, you're here to learn not what to think, but how to think. And you have to learn what to think from your church, from your synagogue, from your mosque, from your parents, from your friends. But the government, the government, the state doesn't tell you what to think. It doesn't tell you that God exists or God doesn't exist. That's for you to figure out for yourself. I know, but the problem is that when you eliminate prayer from school, what you're ultimately it's not doing in schools now, it's not a matter of eliminating them, it's a matter of putting it back. When it's not in school, right. you send the message to children that it's not important. Things that are never mentioned or discussed in school, the message subliminally and subconsciously is that this is not even worthwhile discussing in school. Let me just say my piece. Hang on. Sure. Let me just say what the Rebbe said, because the Rebbe was very, wrote extensively on this, a very, very I know. detailed letter. I discussed letter. it with the Rebbe. I discussed it. We had a conversation. Okay, so I want my listeners to understand because I'm not fully convinced that this wouldn't be helpful for our society. First of all, the Rebbe felt that, um, like I said, non-denominational, something that children from all backgrounds can say. If a child wants to be an atheist, they have their whole life to be an atheist. But at the beginning, a child could believe that they were born um, and created by one God, the God of all human beings. One God? Why one God? There are many religions in America that believe in multiple gods or religions that believe in something other than something that we call a God, already you're going to get into a dispute when you talk about but the God. Rebbe, one second. But the Rebbe felt that America was a special country and that God was recognized here. And some examples are that we have a chaplaincy in the army. Yeah. We open Congress with a prayer. It says, in God we trust on our currency. There is an emphasis on divine providence in the Declaration of Independence. I was just listening to Biden speak the other day, and he said, God willing, while he was talking, yeah. it just Look, flew off his tongue. Wrong. So what? They're, they're and also, hold on. There and also, be God we trust on the coins. There shouldn't be an opening of Congress with a prayer. There shouldn't be uh, mention of providence. By the way, the Constitution was called the godless Constitution. There's no reference to God in the Constitution, and many people uh, oppose that. But Thomas Jefferson insisted that we separate church from state. On his tombstone, uh, he had only three things that he wanted listed. One, that he wrote the Declaration of Independence, and two, that he wrote the provisions of Virginia that separated church from state. For him, that was the most important check and balance, even more important than the separation of powers. History has proved that merging church and state is a disaster, church and for state. But history has also proven that different solutions work at different times. Just like when a person is sick, you don't give them the same antibiotics that they got six years ago. You go to the doctor and you get a new, fresh set of antibiotics. And right now we're at a situation where I think it's safe to say that based on what is happening in the public schools and based on where we are at with our society, that our country, in a sense, is sick. And perhaps we could remedy this illness. And why not embrace that opportunity? I agree Why do we have to assume that it's going to turn? back to communist Russia. Let's it won't. Assume, this is America. Let's cure it. Let's di directly address it, but let's directly address it in a way that's consistent 
with our constitution, with our constitutional history. Let's tell students that they can uh, believe in values, that it's very important to have principles. I just wrote a book called The Price of Principle, How Integrity is Worth the Consequences. I believe in principle. Look, I'm about to write a book, which you will not like, and many of your listeners will not like. And the title of my book is Why I Daven Like an Orthodox Jew. I do. I love going to shul. I love davening like an Orthodox Jew. Why I think like an agnostic. And I think any reasonable person has to have doubts. I know even rabbis do. And then the final part, which people will disagree with, and why I behave like an atheist. Now, let me explain why I behave like an atheist. I didn't choose that. I'm actually an agnostic. I have, I have, no, I have no, no certainty about God, about evolution, about science, about uh, any issues. I'm, I'm waiting. Maybe I'll find out someday. But why do I say I behave like an atheist? Because I was on an airplane once. I had just taken my um, oldest son to college. It was one of the happiest days of my life. I get on the plane in Stapleton Airport. In, um, in Denver, Colorado, the plane takes off. It gets up to, I don't remember, 10,000 feet. And the pilot announces, this is a serious, serious issue we have. We cannot get the, the, the flaps of the plane back into the landing position. We're going to have to have a crash landing. Is there anybody on the plane who has experience in disaster control? Some people wrote their hand, raised their hands, former Marines. They were assigned at the door with axes. We were all told to take off our belts, take off our glasses. Uh, get into the uh, brace position, and you have an hour, an hour, because we're dumping the fuel. During that hour, it never occurred to me ever to think about God. Just never. I wrote a letter to my children. I wrote a letter to my parents, uh, but I never thought about God because that is not who I am. Um, it's not the person I am. If I was going to have a discussion with somebody, I would open that up, but people say no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole. I was in the foxhole, and I not did true. not Not true. Down. I disagree with you, and I'll give you a perfect example. When I gave birth to my first child, I'm a God-fearing, observant Jew, Orthodox, from from birth, have never been not religious a day in my life. The day I gave birth to my oldest daughter, I remember leaving the hospital hospital on a high and sending my doctor a letter thanking him for delivering my baby. And then for years afterwards, until today, practically, I asked myself, why in that moment of gratitude did I not pen a letter to God who gave me this child? Me, somebody who is, why didn't I? Yeah. Because it, it, I'll tell you why. Because faith is complicated and personal. And that's why it shouldn't be in school. That's exactly, you now made the best argument. Because faith is personal, it shouldn't be in school. Just like sex is personal, it shouldn't be in school. But the only way for us to teach our children that we don't live in a godless jungle, and the only way to teach children to respect one another because we are all created the same, is to teach them from a tender young age that there is one God so, in the world. And, and, they, and they were all created the same by this one God. It is only beneficial for our children. I mean, at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. Because here we are all these years later where public schools decry God left and right. We live in a godless society. Public schools never mentioned. There is not a single public school that has ever said God doesn't exist. God, public schools do not decry God. They just say we're teaching you math and science and grammar. We are not in the business of indoctrinating you into a religion. And you mention non-denominational prayer, and then you say one God. 
What could be more denominational than Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad? One God. That is not the prayer. What about people who believe in multiple gods? What about people who believe in no God? What about people who believe in deep morality and ethics without necessarily having all people who have doubts about God like me? I know, but if a person doesn't believe, if a person believes in multiple gods... That is something that obviously they're being actively taught in their homes, which which is extremely important. So if they learn in school with their peers, all of their peers, every shade of color, every race, yeah. and if they all say the same thing every day and they're equal on that basic preliminary level, everything else that they so learn about religion in their home is, is, is building up from there. School should tell kids who have parents who don't believe in God, school should say to kids at six years old, your parents are wrong. Your parents are stupid. Your parents are immoral. There is God. There is one God. You were created by God, and whatever your parents tell you, don't listen to them. How dare you tell students that? But we're doing the opposite. We're doing the opposite. We are teaching children that God doesn't exist. You're making the fundamental mistake that because medical schools uh, uh, and, and technology schools don't mention God, that somehow they're against God. Darwin didn't mention God. He was a God-fearing man, but it's not a part of his evolutionary theory. It's not part of education to indoctrinate. Now, here's where we have a real agreement. I agree that schools should not teach students about homosexuality, should not teach them about sex, should not teach them about masturbation, should not teach them about a range of issues that are very, very important very important in their life. That's something they should learn in other places because it's personal. You just told me a fact that made it so clear that you're fundamentally wrong. That is that religion is personal. We shouldn't be teaching things that are personal, as personal as religion, as personal as sex. But we are a nation, and the Constitution was created to unite us and to. You're telling me what the Constitution. You're telling me what the Constitution was written to create. I've read every word of the Constitutional Convention. I've read every word of every state constitutional convention. If the Constitution was designed to create, but it's meant to serve the people. It is meant to serve the people. All the people. True or not true? All the people. All the people. Exactly. So right now, but right now there is a calculated war on religion and religious practices. And it is not. That's your imagination. Where is the war? It's not my imagination. There, there is. Am I declaring war? Am I declaring war on religion? I don't want religion. Was there not a prayer in school in the sixties? No, there wasn't. Some school, some states had, and some states didn't. Most did. Okay, most did. Let me ask you an example. Let me give you another another argument, and that is this: in the United States, the vast majority of people are religious and they believe in God. In Europe, they are not religious. In France, they are not religious. In Scandinavia, they are not religious. What if your model were adopted, and every school? in France and in Scandinavia adopted a majority rule. And every I'm day, talking about every America day, here. I'm talking about a, America here. And every day announced, we start our class with the direct argument and the direct truth. There is no God. There is no God. That's the truth. Because the majority of people in Scandinavia believe that. The majority should not rule on issues of religion. Every individual should be able to make that decision for herself or himself. 
And we live in a country, yeah, we want to unite us, but we don't want to unite us back to, about religion. Because if you united us around religion, we'd all be Christians. Remember, if you ever, ever did a vote on whether the United States should have an established religion, it would be 80% to 20 saying we ought to have an established religion. And then 90% would say that established religion should be Christianity. And then the debate would be, should it be Catholicism or should it be Protestantism? And if it's Protestantism, should it be Anglicanism, Baptism? That's what was debated at the conventions. And that's why the framers said Congress shall make no law, no law respecting an establishment of religion. And that's why religion- If there's no God and there's no religion, why aren't we teaching gender in school? Why aren't we teaching about gender fluidity if there's no God or religion? It's not not constitutionally prohibited. It's just not a smart thing to do. To teach students because you don't want- If there's no God, you could be whatever you want. You could be a girl, a boy, a a Z, a Zer, everything goes. If there's no God, we can teach it all. By the way, do that with religion. Most Protestant religions today and reform Judaism- uh, believe in those things. So, by the way, why not teach Reform Judaism, which says that the uh, a, a child is Jewish if the father is Jewish, which says that you uh, that homosexuals are exactly equal. I don't want these religious. I'm not, ta- but I'm not talking about religion in school. Yes, you are. I'm talking. No, I'm not. I'm saying a prayer. That's religion. That's, it is not religion. It is not it. religion. If it's, if it's not religion, then what? You're talking about a prayer that talks about one God and you're saying it's not religion? That's ridiculous. Yeah, I am. It's not. It's not. I, I think it's the opposite. I think it's whatever you make of it. At this point, we're, we're living in a society where we are uh, obsessed with teaching our children that there is nothing that determines who they are, what they are, what their value is, what they should be. We don't teach anything about that. But look what's going on in America. Look what's going on with children in America. Look what's going on in the public schools. We have no prayers. I'm blaming it on the loss of faith. Yes, I'm blaming it on the fundamental loss of faith. I'm not saying that everyone has to be religious. Why not compel people to have faith? Why not, before they come to school, make them take an oath in their belief in God, in one God, and by the way, once you do that, the next step is going to be, and his name is Jesus, and he is our Savior. Because that's No, it has to be done step. in public. There's no, it has to be country. done in public. There has never been a country that has established religion and hasn't picked a particular religion to establish. Name one in history. Name one. Never. I, I'm not saying we need to teach our children a specific religion, but all religions fundamentally believe that somebody other than that that, uh, that somebody created the world and a child can learn this at the tender age of six years old and could have that stability and that little tiny drop of information within them that was uh, w- that was um, secured by their public school education. And then later on in life, they could determine so how I, they want to practice, what, how many guys they want to believe that's in. That's exactly what the communist said. Uh, Ma- Mark said, Give me a We're child. not in communist it's Russia. Russia. We're not in communist Russia. Doesn't matter. What he said is true. Give me a child at the age of six or seven, and you can have him for the rest of your life. You're actually quoting Marx. You're saying we want to indoctrinate our children to believe in one God at the age of six and seven, and then let them decide for themselves. Why not start them with we want to tell you, indoctrinate you, there is no God, the Big Bang Theory. Uh, something came of nothing. 
There was no Beterim Kol. Uh, there was no Viachare Kichlota Kol. Those are religious Jewish notions. Uh, why don't you start by assuming that everything started with the Big Bang? There is no God. And then when you grow up and you see miracles and you see birth, maybe you can move toward God. That's what because the that doesn't is. by the way because that doesn't work. That's what the French do. That's what the Scandinavians do. And they don't have high crime rates, so don't blame it on your pet peeve of no religion in the schools. I ain't say crime rate. I ain't say crime rate. I'm talking about uh, all the sexual perversity and you mean homosex- all the- You mean homosexuality? No, I don't mean what homosexuality. Do mean I mean, and by the way, I came to see you in Temple Emmanuel, I believe it was, or Temple Moses in Florida yeah. five years ago. And I looked up on Facebook to see what I asked you. And I asked you just this. I asked you if you think think that because of the lack of religion and God and any spirituality in our school systems, we're seeing an increase in children who want to be different genders because they have no focus and no... And what did um, I say? You said live and let live. Those are personal decisions. I don't think children should be taught about that. They shouldn't be taught it's wrong. But they're being they taught be about gender. They're being let, taught about gender fluidity stop, in preschool. Let's stop that, but don't don't create one problem to solve another problem. I am just as opposed to talking about God. It's much more dangerous to talk about God in school than to talk about gender fluidity. Nobody's ever started a war over gender fluidity. I ain't say talk about I ain't say talk God. about God in school. But I ain't say talk about God in school. I ain't say include uh, curriculum. I ain't say bring library books in. I just said a short non-denominational prayer acknowledging the existence of a creator of the universe one, one, and that we depend on God, him. One God. A creator. So, a creator. So, so that so so every child will go home and be told we believe in ten gods. We believe in three gods. We believe in idol. We believe in no so God. Start, no problem. Why not start by saying we start by saying we believe in no God because there's no proof of God. And so we'll then let you decide whether you want to live and believe in God. Look, Thomas Jefferson believed in God. He was a deist. He believed that God created the universe like a clockmaker creates a clock. But he also believed that God does not intervene, that does not make decisions, that their prayer doesn't work. So once you start getting into what is religion, it becomes something that can't be answered by a single prayer. So, you know, I I had tremendous respect for the Rebbe. I met him on several occasions. I thought he was absolutely brilliant, but he was absolutely categorically wrong about this issue and about America. And um, and, and, and he was right to advocate. That was his view. He's a rabbi. I'm a constitutional scholar. He was right as a rabbi to advocate it. And I'm right as a constitutional scholar to oppose it. So I'm not saying that he was wrong as a rabbi. That's his job. But our job, as Theodore Herzl put it when he wrote Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state, keep the rabbis in their temples. Keep them out of the Knesset. Keep them out of, look at what it's doing in Israel. It is destroying one of the greatest countries in the world to have a merger of synagogue, mosque, and state. It is creating all kinds of problems at the uh, mountaintop. It is creating all kinds of problems in government. And the United States has avoided those problems. We're one of the only countries in the world that has never had conflict over religion. And we have more religious people. There are more religious people in the United States, a much higher percentage, than in Israel, than in France. If you want more religious people, more ethics, more Abolish prayer in the school. That's the best way to get it. 
have an even sharper separation, eliminate the prayer in front of Congress, eliminate in God we trust, and we'll actually have a much, much better country, and more people will go to synagogue, more people will go to mosque, more people will go to church. It's worked. Why break it? I, I have to disagree. I think the crux of the problems we have in American society now are directly because of the fact that we don't bring up children who are aware of a supreme authority. They have no respect for authority and not somebody that you that, that has to tell you how to live your life, but simply a fact that we are all created equal under one creator. I mean, ultimately, the difference between you and I is that all these years later, I realized that it's not about having God in a foxhole. It's about having God every single second of your life, not just when you give birth or when you're on an airplane that's going down, but an actual fundamental core belief instilled deep inside you so that no matter what you're experiencing, you know it's from God. That have to do with prayer in school? You made a very personal decision. It's very personal. It's a very intimate decision. It's not something that kids should learn about at six, seven, eight, 10, 12 years old. They should not be told that they have to take a position, that their teacher is taking a position on whether there is a God, whether there's one God, whether he's an intervening God. It's not the teacher, it's the society. It's the society we live in. It's our country, it's America. Society says the opposite. We want to- Well, we're not like the Europeans, thank God. We don't want to be like the Europeans. Would you agree that it would be a good thing for France to establish atheism in its official uh, religion and to have every day start with God does not exist. There is no God. Whoever thinks God exists is wrong. That's society. Would you want to have that? Are you in favor, favor of what France does today? It bans a yarmulke in class. It bans the um, Muslim women from wearing their religious. No, items. I'm not. They I'm not. Totally. They have established secularism as their religion. There is no difference. If you say majority rules, you're going to get atheism, agnosticism, and religion. You're going to get religion of one kind in certain countries, religion of another kind in other countries. We'll never stop fighting. Even the idea of one God, what does that mean? A six-year-old kid is going to come in and say, what do you mean one God? There is Jesus. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Catholicism says there are three gods, not, not one God. And Buddhism says, well, there's really not one God. And, and Unitarianism, as distinguished from Anglicanism, uh, says there is only at most one God. And, and the Anglican Church is closer to the Catholic Church in that regard. How do you resolve those questions? I know, but that's the same question that you can ask about gender. The same thing you could ask about gender. So Americans decided there's two genders. This one decided there's 50 genders. on your side on gender. That's not an argument. Let's abolish discussion of gender, but let's not introduce something even more dangerous historically. Nobody's ever started a war about gender, but we have had pogroms. We have had the Inquisition. We have had the Crusades all about religion. And if you ask the Crusaders... All they were doing was saying, please, believe in God. And if you don't, we're going to cut your head off. And in the Inquisition, they were saying, please, believe in God, our God. And if you don't, we will either convert you or kill you. And uh, that's the way it has worked historically in the world. America has been safe from that. George Washington wrote this great letter 
to the congregation in Newport, in which basically he said, of toleration, we will speak uh, no longer. All Americans are free to do what they want, to worship as they please or not to worship, but don't start introducing governmentally approved prayer. By the way, if you have a prayer in the schools, it's going to have to be approved by the government. Some government bureaucrat will write that prayer, and that will be a disaster. It will never happen. That's why Israel doesn't have a constitution now, because they could never agree on issues like separation of, of church and, and, and state. And, and, and they never will. And America could never agree unless you try to paper it over with things like, well, you know, it's non-denominational. There's never in history been a non-denominational prayer. Do you think there's anything fundamental we should be teaching our children, like the American flag should be saluted and raised every day, perhaps maybe the Pledge of Allegiance with their hands over their chest, anything? Look, no, I can tell you, I, I salute the American flag. Um, I take the Pledge of Allegiance. I am very patriotic. But if my child at six or seven years old came home and said, oh, oh let me give you an example. My child did. He was in public school in Stanford, uh, California, in Palo Alto, California. And the teacher, oh, he had never said the pledge in Cambridge, but the teacher said, you have to say, under God. And my son, who was, you know, went to school with me all the time, said, no, I'm not saying under God. I'm not having a school teacher tell me that I have to say under God. And he refused to. And the principal called me down. And I said to the principal, you think I would be upset about this? I'm so proud of my son. He doesn't have to say under God in school. If he wants to whisper it under his breath, fine. But it was wrong for Congress during the Eisenhower administration to introduce the words under God. It was wrong for the Constitution to, oh, by the way, the oath the president takes doesn't mention uh, that. Uh, the Constitution, as I said, doesn't mention God. So by not mentioning God, you're not negating God. You're just saying he doesn't belong in schools. He doesn't belong in the government. Uh, God belongs in the churches and the synagogues and in the homes. Uh, that's where you ought to teach those kinds of values. Gender doesn't belong in the school. Race uh, doesn't belong in the school. None of these things belong in the school. But now when you're going to introduce God, you're going to invite introduction of opposing points of view like gender and like race. And I'm particularly worried about the race curriculum, which is now dominating the school, and I'm trying my best to get rid of it. I don't think children should be taught that they're racist. Um, and, and I don't think children should be taught uh, about uh, issues that are private and personal. And you were the first one to acknowledge when you told this interesting story about your birth that religion and faith are such personal matters. They are. That's why they shouldn't be part of the government. Okay, we'll continue. I just, uh, I just think that based on what we're experiencing right now, the only place we could go is up. So I, No, I'm we not, can go I'm down. You know, in Israel, they have a funny definition of what's a pessimist. Um, a, a, an optimist, uh, a, the pessimist is the one who says, Oy vey, things are so bad they can't get worse. And the optimist says, yes, they can. And I believe it would be much worse. I think we'd be going down, down, down if we start introducing God into public schools. You know, if you want your children to learn about God, send them to private school, send them to yeshiva, send them to Catholic school. I prayed every day 
until the 12th grade. I prayed every single day. I davened every day because I went to yeshiva. And then I went to Brooklyn College, and there was no prayer. And I think I emerged as a pretty decent person with good values. I don't need public, I don't need the government to tell me about God, to tell me about prayer. I hear you. But all I'm saying is that when you don't teach a child from a young age that there is a God, you're essentially teaching them that there is no God. But the school is where most children learn everything. Yeah. Most children learn very little at home unless their parents are are devout or determined. Let me understand that. If you don't teach your children about homosexuals, you're basically saying there are no homosexuals. Is that what you're saying? How is that different? If the school doesn't teach you about homosexuals, and then a child sees two men walking down the street holding hands, they're going to say they are absolutely abnormal. We learned. Why is it important for children to learn about homosexuality? It isn't. isn't. Exactly. But it is important for children to have to have some sort of uh, understanding that the world is not only about them. And they are not here by an accident. And when they do, they can have they will have more values and more respect for one another. That the world is not about you. You can teach that the world is a community. You can teach about everything. What you cannot teach about is that there is one God and that we're praying to that God. That is an establishment of not only religion, but a particular religion. Remember, there are religions that do not believe in prayer. I like to daven. But I do not believe that God listens to my prayers, and I do not believe that God answers uh, my prayers. But I daven. I like davening. Uh, we all have different views of, of, of religion. Uh, when I daven in shul, I don't think about God particularly. I think about God when I sit outside in the middle of the night and I see the stars. That's when I become religious. Um, that's when I say to myself, oh, my God, how could all of this happen without some original creator? I make the leap of faith and then I move back into my classroom and I make the leap of unfaith. And I am 84 years old and I don't know the answer to any of these questions. I still am asking them and I will be asking them on my deathbed. And that's why these are such personal issues. They just don't belong. And and by the way, if you want your children to have prayers, it's very easy. Send them to a Chabad school. They are wonderful schools, uh, terrific teachers. Uh, you get a good education. You get values. You get God. All of that is fantastic. But don't. But you send also them get the new. You also get the New York Times. <laughs> and don't make me pay. Me pay to indoctrinate. Other people. But that is the argument being made about the about the Hasidim and the New York Times, and we can move to that, and then I'll let you go because I know you're on a, on a schedule here. But let's let's just go into the last question because I had a series of questions. We spent a lot of time on this, but let's just move on and we could wrap it up. Okay. Sure. Um, I feel like the world is divided into two eras now: the pre Kanye and post Kanye. And you know, Kanye is a shtick dreck, like my bubby would say. You know, his behavior, his meltdown, the whole thing was so shameful and so hurtful and so disappointing and concerning. Um, I had David Bernstein on my show. He has a book called Woke Antisemitism. And he argues about um, he argues that the worser of both sides of antisemitism comes from the left. But ultimately, we all know it comes for full circle, the horseshoe effect and the Jews are always hated from the left and the right. I agree. Okay, so what are your thoughts as a as a lawyer and as a Jew on what could be done to eliminate um, forms of anti-Semitism in America. And if you don't mind, can you explain 
prolectic dimitude and how the Arab nations or Islam specifically seems to be getting a free pass compared to the. What is it? It's called proleptic dimitude. Oh, oh, dimitude. Oh, yeah. Okay, dimitude. So proleptic means like when you when you anticipate um, uh, Islamophobia. You know, I'm I'm that's not something I'm particularly interested in. There is a concept among some Muslims, not among mainstream Muslims, not among others, of that Jews and Christians have to be treated at a somewhat lower level. But that's not a problem in America. No, no, no. I don't mean that's the problem. The problem is something else. The problem is that we anticipate a certain reaction from Muslims, like the Charlie Hebdo uh, scenario, so that we are um, apprehensive to treat Islam the way we treat Judaism. I mean, look at the New York Times. They're obsessed with Hasidim. So there is this uh, um, fear, this this underlying fear that Americans have and seem to redirect all their angers and all their issues at the Jewish people because we are not a violent nation. We're a, a nation of peace. Um, so how do we fight back when, unfortunately, our nature works against us in this respect? You know, I'm not going to be able to win the game of whack-a-mole on Twitter fighting back at every nasty Palestinian who tweets at me. I mean, you're asking me to summarize. I've written 52 books you're asking me to summarize at least 25 of them. I've been devoted to this issue <laughs> my entire life. I want to fight anti-Semitism. I want to fight. I wrote a scathing attack on, on, on Kanye West and on Donald Trump for not sufficiently criticizing uh, Kanye West. Um, I, I've been strongly opposed to the New York Times. I used to be their most frequent legal op-ed writer. Uh, they won't publish me anymore because I've been so opposed to uh, the New York Times. I, I join you in fighting uh, anti-Semitism. And remember that anti-Semitism was a government policy in many parts of Europe um, prior to the Second World War. It was part of the government policy. The Polish government adopted anti-Semitism as a part of their Christian theology. The church they established through people like Cardinal Glemp was a church that said Jews were responsible for the killing of Jesus, and that's our religion, and we're going to teach it to our students in our public schools, and that's what happened. And that's what happens when you try to uh, introduce a religion into the schools, even as indirectly and singularly as with a little prayer. So I think these issues are related. Yeah, but the Palestine narrative is being taught in in college campuses all across America. I I, mean, whether we like it or not. I agree with you. And I spent my time opposing it and I would have continued to oppose it. But for the fact that Temple Emanuel and the 92nd Street Y and the Ramah School have banned me and don't allow me to speak there about these issues, which is why I'm no longer invited to speak on many college campuses against anti-Semitism. So the fault lies squarely with Jewish leaders at places like Temple Emanuel, Ramaz, and, and the 92nd Street. Why? I want to continue to argue against using the Palestinian narrative in school. We have done that. We've brought lawsuits. We're contemplating lawsuits against the University of California at Berkeley for having 14 clubs sponsored by the government. That doesn't allow Zionist speakers. They won't allow me to speak at Berkeley about the United States Constitution unless I take an oath that I'm an anti-Zionist. And of course I won't because I'm a very proud uh, Zionist. So um, uh, look, I work closely with Chabad uh, and I have to give Chabad an enormous amount of credit because you know Chabad is not a Zionist organization. Uh, the Rebbe's views on Zionism were complex. 
Um, but it's a pro-Israel organization and an organization that does an enormous amount. One of the proudest moments of my life was helping to establish Chabad at Harvard. We were the first, the first Chabad on any university campus. Now there are, I don't remember, maybe 400 on campus. My brother was a student. My brother went to law school in Harvard. Yeah. He actually arranged to have you come speak in 2017. Yeah, yeah. And, and when I spoke at one point, this was a little later, my speech had to go off campus because too many students would be protesting me because of my pro-Israel attitudes. So the speech had to take place at the Chabad house uh, in Harvard Square rather than at Harvard University, where I've taught for 50 years. So I'm on your side of this completely. And the fact that we disagree over church and state, I've changed my mind on some of those issues, by the way. The conversation I had with the Rebbe started with the idea of whether or not you should have a Chanukiah in Central Park on public ground. And I originally opposed that. And he persuaded me that he was right about that because there were already work Christmas trees and there were other symbols of religion and equality demanded that even though if I had a vote, I would take all of those symbols down from public grounds, put them on private grounds. But um, once they are on public grounds, I was prepared to light the menorah in Central Park. And I did it quite proudly. And now I've lit the menorah uh, all over the world. I lit it in in Czechoslovakia, I've lit it in Israel, I've lit it at Harvard, and I've lit it in Central Park. And that's all the work of the Rebbe. And the Rebbe turned out to be right on that one. But I think with all due respect and admiration and love, I don't think he was right about non-denominational prayers in the schools. And he knew that about me. And we had conversations about that. And he was a man who was always tolerant of different views. He would have his views. They were strong. I would have my views. We exchanged letters on a couple of issues, uh, including Jesse Helms and uh, issues of that kind. But I have enormous, uh, enormous reverence for the Rebbe. And I have to tell you, the Lubavitch movement has made such a difference in the world. It is probably today the most influential branch of Judaism. Um, and um, with the schools, with its teaching, with so many things, with its work on Aleph, helping prisoners get out of jail, uh, it's other things. And I work with them. I do half of my pro bono legal activity with Olive and with people like Svi Bayarsky and others who devote their life to helping people, not only Jewish, mostly Jewish, but not all Jewish, get out of prisons. I just came back from Israel where I welcomed one of the people that I had helped get out and he came to my house and we had Olchayim and it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. Yeah, you are a proud Zionist. You consider Bibi a close friend. You've written extensively on the subject. You have the most amazing tchotchke collection I've ever seen in my life. Bezrat Hashem, the next time I'm in town, maybe I could come visit and see for yourself because I also like stuff. Well, and I think that YouTube wait, video wait. was amazing. I'm going to put a link so people can watch wait, it. You have to come to my house in New York where I have an original Declaration of Independence, a letter written in the hand of Alexander Hamilton by George Washington saying that people had to get vaccinated in the army. I have Israel's original um, um, uh, Declaration of Independence. I have an original copy of Der Judenstadt. By, um, I have letters from John Adams, letters from Madison. I am a collector, and I, and I love to immerse myself. I also collect uh, Jewish responsa. I think Jewish responsa are some of the most brilliant uh, articulations of halacha and Jewish values um, because it's the rabbis responding to questions. And um, uh, uh, one of the greatest books I've ever read 
was by a Hasidic rabbi called Oshri, Rabbi Oshri, and um, and it's responsa mina meitzar, responsa from the middle of um, of the Holocaust, and you know, amazing, amazing stuff. I love Judaism. I love my association with Judaism. I just don't want it to be powdered down by having the government decide what prayers to say. I want to be able to say Adon Olam. I want to be able to say the Terem Kol. I want to be able to say the Acharei Kol. I want to have, have those things. I don't want the government to tell me what to say. And uh, when you have, when you give the government the power over prayer, you give them too much. Fair enough. I'm going to let you have the final word. You certainly deserve it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm you're a longtime a fan. Question. I love you're your show. It's, uh, are you a lawyer? <laughs> I am barely a graduate from high school. I'm not an academic. Well, I'm a creative. Should be, you should be a lawyer. You're a great lawyer. Your cross-examination of me was exceptional. And I hope you don't mind that I interrupted from time to time, but uh, you interrupted. Not at all. That's the way Jews talk. We don't. The, That's the right. Compliment because you don't have to finish your sentence. I know what you're saying. So let's get to the point. I adore you. I'm going to put a link to your podcast in my show notes so people can uh, start listening. Okay. And much hatzlacha, much luck, health, Come health, up. wealth, and happiness always. You too. And that is episode 78 of the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for being here. Don't forget to rate your based in. That's number one. Number two, buy a tree in Israel. And number three, tell your friends that the Weekly Squeeze is just the best podcast out there. We have the best audience. We have the best guests. And oh, might I add, the best hosts. Two shows a week, every Monday, every Thursday. I will see you on Monday.